Welcome back to Talking Feds, the prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. I'm also a whistleblower lawyer, and my legal practice, while part-time, has been exclusively representing whistleblowers under the False Claims Act, which you may have heard of. It's also known as Lincoln's Law. It was passed in the wake of the Civil War when, in Lincoln's words, unscrupulous contractors would sell the Union Army sugar, but it would really be sand, pants that fell apart in the rain, crippled beasts, and the like. But in the last 30 years or so, it's had a great resurgence and has returned over $60 billion to the federal treasury. We are in the age of the whistleblower officially. In fact, we're in the very day in the week of the whistleblower in the midst of the year of the whistleblower. A whistleblower complaint has succeeded where the Mueller report did not in initiating a bona fide crisis in the presidency and bringing the prospect of impeachment to the fore. We are expecting today, Wednesday, October 2nd, a whistleblowing complaint from the State Department. There's a tax whistleblower on the scene. And this is all with respect to the Trump administration. There's been an explosion, as we're going to hear, in whistleblower activity generally in recent years. So who are whistleblowers and what is this burgeoning phenomenon? To discuss, we have three superbly qualified experts. First, Eric Havian. He is a partner in the San Francisco office of Constantine Cannon. He has 25 years experience representing whistleblowers under not just the False Claims Act, but other statutes. He is, to my mind, the finest whistleblower attorney in the country. He's also a bona fide Fed, having served as an assistant United States attorney in the criminal division of the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco from 1987 through 1994. Eric Havian, welcome to Talking Feds. Thanks, Harry. Nice to be here. And what's been your biggest or most noteworthy case, whistleblower case, and under what statute, if, would you say? The, probably the most significant one. It's not biggest by dollar volume, but there was a case that we had representing a whistleblower. It seems timely now because it involved national security. A case involving the company, which in this case was TRW, manufacturing a defective $50 component for black spy satellites. They knew it was defective. They knew it had issues. When one of the satellites was getting ready to launch, they saw the government who were the NRO, which was launching it, saw some anomalies. They asked the company, is anything we're seeing here something we need to be worried about? They said, no, it's fine. Satellite went up, went blind a little while later. Government has some pretty large damages. The company ended up paying $325 million, but tellingly, the amount of damage was actually much greater than that, but the reason they only paid $325 million was because the government was terrified of a case that would go in open court and reveal national security secrets. So in a way, there was a little bit of extortion going on there. We're also joined by Rob Vogel. Rob is also one of the most prominent and experienced whistleblower lawyers in the country. He's a founding partner of Vogel, Slade, and Goldstein, which he started just five years out of law school. He's also the former Taxpayers Against Fraud Whistleblower Lawyer of the Year. And prior to that, 
He was a trial attorney in the commercial fraud section of the Department of Justice's Civil Division. Welcome, Rob. And what is Taxpayers Against Fraud? Taxpayers Against Fraud is an organization devoted to representing the interests of the community of lawyers and whistleblowers uh, involved in False Claims Act cases. And finally, we welcome Tom Muller to Talking Feds. Tom is neither a whistleblower lawyer nor a Fed. He is, however, one of the worldwide experts on whistleblowers and whistleblower statutes, a former Rhodes Scholar and summa cum laude graduate of Harvard. He's the author of Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in the Age of Fraud, which was published yesterday by Penguin Random House. Tom, welcome. Thank you, Harry. Your previous nonfiction book was entitled provocatively extra virginity. It was about fraud of a different sort. Can you give us the summary of that? In essence, great olive oil is one of the great foods and the keystone of the Mediterranean diet, but it's very hard to come by because of a range of criminal actors who make a lot of money by selling cheap stuff as extra virgin olive oil. So I learned a lot about the world of food fraud, and I think that predisposed me to look into whistleblowing and the much broader uh, range of misconduct that they call out. So let's start there and whistleblowers in general. You know, who are they? Uh, Eric and Rob, you've been representing whistleblowers for more than 50 years together. Tom, you interviewed 200 plus whistleblowers. Just in broad strokes, what character traits or background do they share, if any? Are there any generalizations you can make about whistleblowers? Who are these people who now? Uh, everyone is just beginning to hear about. You know, each whistleblower had an arc of experience that they said quite often, well, I wouldn't have blown the whistle if I had been 10 years younger or if I had been married and so on. But I did feel like there were certain bedrock characteristics in their whistleblowing that underscored that they needed to not only go away from misconduct, but stand up and try to stop it. And one is a certain inflexibility, ethical inflexibility. They're black and white people. They quite often say, I'm rules a rules, rules kind of person. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a rules girl, as one of, one of them said. That doesn't necessarily mean that the life of the party, I think, being um, someone who's even a contrarian or at least willing to challenge authority and challenge the loyalty of the group is, is critical. What about that, Eric? I mean, they don't, you don't think of them as necessarily being, you know, the most popular people in the third, third grade schoolyard. No, no, they were the ones who got beat up because they just <laughs> wouldn't, they wouldn't budge from their position. But, you know, I mean, Tom's absolutely right. The, the other thing I would note in terms of a common denominator, I mean, Rob, I'm sure you've seen this too. The, it's just a myth that, that they do it for the money. The money can be important. In fact, the money can be an essential feature. That's not why they do it. They, they, they never come to us, or virtually never, before they've been screaming and yelling and waving their arms in, inside the company, trying to do it, go within channels. And it's only, they only come to us as a last resort. I mean, isn't that yeah, what you think? And by the way, we should just say that there are some, like that we're going to be talking about the Trump whistleblowing, which are, are under schemes that don't even provide for money. But it is right. true that most of your work as lawyers is under statutes that do give the whistleblower a reward. So the False Claims Act provides that somebody who reports the fraud against the government can get 25, 30, 15, 15 to 30 percent is the range for the recovery of whatever the government brings in as a result of the case. And so actually some of the whistleblowers we deal with in the False Claims Act arena actually are doing it for the money. 
And some of them are doing it for revenge, and that, that's an important factor here. You know, in, in the national security whistleblower field, the money not important at all in the national security field, but most of them are doing it because of a conscience issue. They see something that they just deep down know is wrong. They are nonconformists. They are rule-oriented. And they need to get this right. And, and is, that, is that sort of what you mean by, is it revenge just against some rule breaking in the system? Or is, you think of revenge as being more personal, as it having been beat up in the schoolyard, as it were? When I say revenge, I mean in response to being wronged by the people they're blowing the whistle on. And most often, it's retaliation against them for having tried to do the right thing. So it's a blend of revenge and conscience. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's revenge for something unrelated. Now, in this present context of this whistleblower complaint, the person who stands out to me as very dangerous from the Trumpian standpoint would be John Bolton, who has recently said to be fired the morning after he actually offered his resignation. So, you know, he could have an axe to grind in that sense. And Almost anyone in the intelligence community, Trump has been famously, uh, not just dismissive, but, you know, disparaging of them. You've said, Eric, did I hear you right, that, and Tom has had your experience as well, that usually before they come to you and the legal system, they've actually tried to do the right thing and go within the company, the system, the government, et cetera, and been well gotten what sort of response generally? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's I mean, there's studies that actually have documented that that's exactly what happens. That they go internally first on um, in in the vast majority of cases, and then they come. And you know, it, they they love us. One of the things that's so great about this job is our clients love us because not because we're so lovable, but because, <laughs> although of course we are, yeah. but, but really because we're the first people who have actually listened so, to them. Yeah. Yes. And that's what yes. they're craving. They, yes. they crave someone not to just yeah. slap them down and say, you're not a team player, but someone who will listen with an open mind. Now, you know, most of the time we have to tell them, we don't think you really, it's in your interest to file this case. Uh, you just don't have all the facts or whatever. But that's something that why people don't know, right? We hear about the big verdicts, but those are, you know, really, really the exception. And there's a lot. Well, it's a it's a tough road being a whistleblower, would you say? I've heard constantly in the interviews that I've done for my book that the whistleblower will say, I just couldn't get anyone to hear me. I kept saying the same things. And they begin to kind of question their sanity. And I think their co-workers, the reason that some people are sent for fitness for duty psychological exams is on because their co-workers are thinking, this person must be crazy because they're torching their career. That it's a genuine yeah. disconnect in understanding uh, and simply cannot understand what this person is doing. Well, let's be more concrete there. So what is a typical response from the company, the oh. entity, the court? What are you? What are you Let me give you an or, example. Yeah. One of the whistleblowers who I represented was the medical director of a company, and he was fresh out of his medical training. And he discovered that his company was selling a defective product. He raised it with a board of that company, and they unanimously said that there was no reason to disclose this defect to the FDA. They also said they were going to fix the problem. He bided his time for a few months, and he realized that they were not fixing the problem. And so he, at that point, decided to contact counsel, and he ended up contacting me. And this was about now three months after he had already raised it with the board. He brought it back to the board, and they again voted unanimously not to do anything. 
um, with him being the lone dissenter. In our first conversation, what he said to me is, am I crazy? And I had to explain to him that actually he wasn't, that this was a pretty common phenomenon, at least in my practice, where people who worked for companies that were thought to be reputable thought their company would not do such a thing. And they must be the only one who thinks that this rule, and it's a very fundamental rule, you know, like don't produce a product that kills the patients or don't backdate all the documents, you know, for an accountant that they're the only one who actually thinks that this matters. I mean, I can chime in on that from my own experience. There are instances of really, you know, wicked or creepy pushbacks on the whistleblower, but this notion of paralysis is what I've seen a fair bit. That someone, they'll be faux responsive to the whistleblower. We're thinking about it, we'll take care of it, a few months will pass, and then Basically, they've spoken to some lawyer or somehow gotten frozen and without really disparaging him, but obviously seeing him now as arm's length, an outsider, someone to fear. And that vibe, of course, when that happens in a workplace, you know it right away. It's just nothing ever happens, Tom. Part of the reason that it's so destabilizing as a whistleblower, too, is that sense of almost, am I the crazy person here? Everyone else is saying black and I'm seeing white until they find someone like Eric or like Rob to be able to talk and and have them say, oh, yeah, this is standard. We see this all the time. People are making money decisions instead of health decisions. Till they hear that voice, they can really begin to question their own sanity. Why is fraud so Ramp it. You know, I, so Rob, in your situation, it's not as if the board as a whole did this, you know, greedy and malevolent decision, but somebody did in some part of the company, and it's then the company as a whole that gets scared to make it right. I mean, you know, you find again and again, you almost see a defense. How could they be so stupid? And yet they are. So, Eric, how can they be so stupid? Companies that commit huge fraud. Who, how did it happen that somebody put in that $50 part and everything went dark? Well, you know, if you're kindly Mr. Jones and your company is three people and you deliver milk on the weekends, you know if your people are cheating you or the customers. It's really easy. As our economy has become more complex, as companies have become ever larger, as the structures of those companies have become more complicated, and there's less control at the top. So that even if you're a CEO who wants to do the right thing, you don't remotely control that organization. And what you do, though, as a CEO really matters because if you create unreasonable pressures for profitability, those pressures will filter down. And the trouble is you don't know how they're going to filter. And oftentimes, if you're in a large organization, someplace in the organization, there's some manager who's got some bill that's due that they can't cover or that they foresee in six months or a year. And they're going to say, look, I've got to make these numbers. I've got to make this happen. I don't care how you do it. And maybe they're not the ones who actually commit the fraud. It may be someone even below them who feels that pressure. But that sort of corporate pressure with the need to report the earnings as of tomorrow, every single day. Those kinds of pressures, I think, are what are just increasing in our economy. And that's what creates the fraud. Legally speaking, how high does that have to go up in order for the company to have liability for the fraud? Is that a hard question to answer? That's a very easy question. It doesn't have to go high at all. If somebody is acting within the scope of their employment and they are committing fraud, then the company is going to be liable. There has been a split 
and the law over whether it has to be benefiting the company or benefiting the person. Can the company be excused if it was just to benefit the person individually? And even there, uh, the law tends to say that the company's liable. What accounts for the sort of social ambivalence that I think we really do have toward whistleblowers? Whistleblowers report experiences when they come to lawyers of being really ostracized, having hellish couple years, and yet they're extolled. You know, just yesterday, Senator Grassley gave the kind of peon to whistleblowers that you hear in the public sphere, but but people, in fact, feel ambivalent about them. Do, do you think, A, that's correct, and B, what accounts for it? Well, I think, you know, all of us, to a certain extent, being human beings, are schizophrenic in the sense that we value and we claim to value truth and justice and genuinely feel that's important. But in our day-to-day lives, in our workplaces, loyalty and obedience quite often trump, uh, no pun intended, uh, truth and justice. And in this particular case, you know, where, where your bread is buttered is, is where your allegiances lie. You know, and, and even when we recognize that a, that a whistleblower has performed an amazing service, saved billions of dollars in fraud or saved thousands of lives, there's still that little voice in us, that little voice that says, yeah, but they turned on their team. They weren't a Nobody team likes a player. Well, I mean, you know? and you're yeah. seeing it now um, in, right. in real time. I mean, you know, the, these Republicans who are trying to defend the indefensible, they see the president going out and saying this is treasonous, you know, perhaps we should be executing this person. And, and all of them know that's wrong. I mean, right. every single one of them. I, I question whether the president does, but there's no question that the Republicans in Congress all know that that is a really bad and wrong thing to say. And yet, you know, it's like the old expression, where you stand depends on where you sit. Yeah. And, and that's the problem. When we think of whistleblowers in kind of common culture, I think they bring to mind a spectrum of different people. I would put up, you know, Daniel Ellsberg as one, Catherine Gunn, whom there's a new movie about starring Kira Knightley, but who did a report in sort of real time in the Iraq war. But there's also maybe Edward Snowden, Julian Assange. Do you yourselves have sort of views about, do you think the different positions they are in represent sort of morally important distinctions? Are, you know, are all whistleblowers born or made equal? What about this, you know, the spectrum I've laid out? Are, do they all count as whistleblowers? And what makes for a more or less righteous whistleblower as you see it? Well, I think in the current environment where corruption, institutional corruption is extremely widespread. The breadth of whistleblowing, the definition of whistleblowing tends to expand to anyone with a conscience who's willing to act on it. Now, obviously, there are laws that specifically determine who an official whistleblower is according to the law. But I think all the people you mentioned had good facts and brought forward in good faith those facts under the definite impression that they represented a serious misconduct. And those facts have stood the test of time. If Edward Snowden had revelations had caused the death of one person. You would have seen that person's body on the front page of every newspaper. Yeah, All of the maybe. Uh, Everybody, you guys agree? I, with I that? don't agree with Assange. I, I yeah. don't think Assange fits into the category of the others. He seems yeah. to be broadcasting things wherever he can get them to hurt wh- whoever his agenda wants him to hurt. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, or is there an agenda? Just, the question is, is yeah. there an agenda or just no editing? I suspect that there's an agenda, but that's my own. Well, I don't it, know much. Of about course, whistleblowers can have agendas. Well, but, they they almost always have some agenda, but right. sometimes it's a very narrow agenda to simply yeah. you know get the facts out. But but I think I, I think Assange is a harder case. I wouldn't dismiss him entirely. I mean, the thing that's troubling to me about the Assange case, I've written about this, is that. They're using the Espionage Act to go after him, and the actual espionage piece of it that fits within the statute, it's a hair's breadth of, uh, of evidence, really. Right. It's minuscule evidence, and yet they're using that because they want to say, no, we're not going after him as a journalist. We're going after him as essentially kind of a spy. And I just think that that's dangerous because there, there really isn't a lot of distinguishing to distinguish Assange from other people who are the, the good journalists yeah. and who and who are objectively reporting um, in terms of being prosecuted for, the, for espionage. Yeah, well, that does make that a, a special case. And I'll state my probably contrary view in this group that Snowden seems different to me because of this sort of heroic tale that he presents of having outed the uh, abuses domestically were, first of all, he didn't go, come forward first. I don't know if that's essential for a whistleblower, but so much of what he revealed was, A, dangerous to people in the field, and B, not what he is lionized for having revealed. Let me ask about one other case before we move on to the whistleblower, because I think some listeners are pretty interested in it. Reality winner, any thoughts about her? Well, she, I mean, my feeling about her is that it was really the no. sentence that seemed unfair. Right. I mean, it, it's one thing to have said, okay, she shouldn't have done what she did, but but she clearly didn't have nefarious motives. She didn't turn it over to a foreign government. Right. She turned over national security information to the press, to the intercept. And typically, at least before the last five to seven, eight years, that was viewed as very, very different and not deserving of long prison terms. But she got five years, right. and that's a and long time. And also prison. arguably indistinguishable from what like high officials do in Washington every right. day. If they, you look at David Petraeus and how he was treated yeah. uh, and the conduct that he engaged in, you, it, the double standard it hits you in the face. Yeah. yeah. The big shots definitely you know, dropped the dime to, on the, uh, to yeah. the journalists. All right, so let's move to the whistleblower complaint that has, in fact, brought the age of the whistleblower crashing down on us. So the whistleblower that launched the Ukraine inquiry, first of all, notice there were 12 people on the phone, one of whom we've just learned is the Secretary of State, Pompeo, and yet only the whistleblower came forward. So is that consistent with your experience, the sort of thing, Rob, you were talking about with your client? All these other people knew something was amiss. We have only this one mystery man or woman who actually blew the whistle, and he or she was not even among the 12. That's completely consistent with my experience for two reasons. One is that this person is blowing the whistle on people who have power over his career and paycheck, and that's enormous, of course. Who, which one of us would counsel somebody to do something that's going to put their family in jeopardy because they have no income, you know, and perhaps no health insurance, etc.? And the second thing is, as we talked about earlier, it goes against the fact that he's not going to be viewed as a team player. So he's wondering, all these other folks 
these other 10, 12 people who heard the call and the many people talking about it, they're not going forward. Why shouldn't I just take the, the route that they take and be part of the team? And keep and well, my head down. And, right. you know, the other thing, the reason in this instance is the, the so-called protection, the, it's known as the Intelligence Community, Community Whistleblower Protection Act, really provides no, no protection, protection at all. It's, not only is there no reward, but it does say you can't retaliate against the person, but it provides no route for that person to go to court to get damages um, as they could under the other whistleblower statutes that apply to corporate whistleblowers. So, you know, why should somebody take the chance without even a real protection from disclosure of their identity and retaliation beyond the goodwill of some people who work under a president who clearly has a different agenda. Well, why indeed, Tom? What's your, from, from being really familiar with different, you know, with whistleblower motivations, how do you, you know, fill in the colors on what we just know as a sort of outline? Well, there are bystanders and upstanders. And, uh, and for whatever reason, this person perhaps gathering a consensus from other people as well, from these 12 people, perhaps becoming a clearinghouse, but apparently realized, hey, and no one else is going to stand up and say something. I've got to do this. And I'm sure in their job description, reporting waste, fraud, abuse, and misconduct is in there. So in a sense, it's a professional requirement, a dangerous one. But, you know, I think that this person just said, okay, no one else is going to do it. I better do it. By the way, it's especially true of the intelligence community. I mean, in a sense, the intelligence community are a bunch of whistleblowers. Talk about playing by the rules, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to do what's right. And yet he or she stood uh, alone. But there is an interesting aspect of the complaint. It's not simply the original July 25th call to Zelensky. The the complaint really does lay out a wealth of what you could call, you know, water cooler communication where, you know, this is to in its face, really alarming conduct by the president of the United States. Obviously, everyone's talking about it, but nobody, you know, goes forward and actually does the complaint. And yet the nature of this complaint is that he's either explicitly or implicitly leading the investigators, if there will be investigators, to witnesses. So it makes me think that he understands that there are people out there who will tell the truth when asked. Yeah, what do you make of that? First of all, the complaint itself is really well-crafted. You wouldn't normally, it almost feels like there was a lawyer. Yeah, I wish our clients all came to us with complaints right. that looked like that. Well, <laughs> do, you, do you think that he has a very fine whistleblower lawyer now? Do you yes. think he probably or she um, went to the lawyer first? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. It's, it's hard really to know, but certainly the, his complaint is laid out the way a lawyer would lay out a complaint. Right. And so, you know, either, you know, we understand these analysts are extremely sophisticated and it's been suggested that he is an analyst. So perhaps that accounts for it. But, you know, the other thing I want to mention here is we've been saying there's only one whistleblower. Most whistleblowers require gestation periods of months, if not years, before they can just bring themselves to come forward. And so I don't think it was beyond the pale that if this person hadn't come forward, that someone else would not have come forward in the coming weeks or months or, you know, maybe when the administration had gone, which, of course, would be a little late, but still. No, it's an excellent point because there's actually motivations under the other statutes to come forward first. But here, presumably, you know, whenever you know about the misconduct, it's it's right to come forward. What do you think? Well, Tom, you wanted to... 
I, I just wanted to ask, I mean, is it not reasonable to assume that in the vetting process that the IG gave this complaint, he would have questioned some of these witnesses? Is that kick the tires, right? Find out what this person knows? I, I think that's we been know reported. that that happened. Yeah, that I that think was it's been part reported of the determination. That, that, I mean, one of the things that's going to be fascinating is, is whether the administration will seek to throw a cloak of privilege over the IG's interviews with these key witnesses. It would be fascinating to know what but they what said. But what a dramatic moment that's going to be when the whistleblower, you know, I think by now the whistleblower knows <laughs> that he or she is at a point of no return, mm-hmm. can be granted protection against criminal prosecution, as you say, you know, a totally nasty, vindictive administration could still make uh, essentially uh you know make uh, the, the his or her professional life hell or or go away what i, I guys... hope he hasn't had a slip up in his handling of classified information well, at right. any point in any his point. career well that's right. i mean right isn't that isn't that the number one strategy you find for your clients they have good information but the number one instinct of uh, of the defenders once once the you know battle is joined is to try to ravage the whistleblower for and it could have nothing to do with the complaint or your employment right just send a public uh, a private investigator out there is there any drinking any any misconduct no, of forget any the kind? investigator no, no one has yet threatened to execute one of my clients <laughs> right there you go what about do you think by the way that constituted reprisal under the oh, statute there's just absolutely no, no doubt about it. so so trump has already violated the statute do you agree with uh, well you're not a lawyer tom but, no. but does that seem right to you? I mean, yeah. You know. I mean, you know, I had a, I had a slightly different question. I mean, in, in this particular case, is it not conceivable that given that Trump has uh, has aggressively alienated the intelligence community since his arrival, and that given that this person is basically stating the case of the intelligence yes. community that, that the president of the United States is a huge liability and a dangerous person, perhaps treasonous, is it not the case that uh, that this person could actually have a soft landing? given that his whole team is actually agreeing with what this person says. My best guess is he, first of all, you raised two points. One is we see this this person as, you know, a, a total Boy Scout and hero. It does seem to me, you can see a motivation. Trump, remember, you know, his first day in office went after firing Comey, go, you know, incredibly crassly going to the, was it the CIA and, and the, uh, in front of the wall of heroes and, and, you know, talking about himself. This is a guy who must be loathed by many members of the intelligence community. And you could sort of see that, you know, that, that motivation there that he sort of, in some ways, it's the, it's the community as a whole. Well, I, you know, support for him probably breaks down to yeah. about 55% in favor and 42% opposed. <laughs> right, I mean, exactly. you know, I mean, this is the country yeah. we live in. So yes. yeah, I think he'll have, he may have something of a soft landing, yeah. but, but My best uh, guess, what do you think? Let's go think. around on that. Will he, will in fact he actually be, you know, hurt professionally? I, I, my best guess would be no, that they, they wouldn't get away with it. I, I think in the long run, yeah. he will uh, have some brightness to yeah. look forward to. But in the short run, it's going to be very difficult yeah. because in the context of being a government employee, you know, they all answer yeah. to the top and we know what that entails. And, and yet, um, you know, will in the future, will be, he be treated as folk hero with all the, yeah. uh, the things that go with that? Maybe Perhaps. he's next detail to the Ukraine or Kazakhstan. Huh? I, I'd say there's a 70% chance that he leaves the agency before yeah. the end of Trump's term. Yeah, I, I can yeah. see that, right? He's, you know, his, his I mean, life has now been changed irrevocably. Yeah. What do you guys think about the New York Times decision to 
go as far as they could to out him or her. I think that was an awful decision. And, you know, it's obviously the instinct of journalists to publish when they get information. But there they were they were misconstruing the role of a whistleblower and they were buying into the defense strategy, which is that it's all about the whistleblower. And if the whistleblower has secondhand information, then that's not as good as as someone who's an eyewitness. And if the whistleblower has a bias, that's not as good. So we need to know about the whistleblower in order to attack the whistleblower. In fact, the whistleblower provides a roadmap. And as soon as that roadmap arrives, the first job of the investigator, and we were, we all used to be on the Justice Department side, so we used to run these investigations, is to try to corroborate the whistleblower's allegations through other sources, documents, and other witnesses. And it's not until you have actually corroborated the essential elements that you can relax and say, now we've got a case. Because it's assumed that the whistleblower has some baggage. Right. Everyone and, agree? Yeah. I, I, you know, you in this particular case, Rob has exactly right, need to know is a critical factor here. If it were some abstruse uh, fact about a nuclear power plant, if it were some abstruse question of national security that needed an explanation and needed a CV behind it to make us trust it, that's one thing. This complaint reads, it's absolutely bulletproof, absolutely clear. You know where these bodies are buried. You know the questions that you need to ask. Well, you know, the irony here is that the fact that that the president's defenders keep emphasizing that the whistleblower has very little firsthand information is precisely the reason that his personal motivation is so beside the point. It's not relevant. He is going to identify the people who have the firsthand information. He has already said in his complaint that there are many people who he spoke with who had firsthand information. So his credibility is not what's on the line. He is not going to be the one that testifies if there's a Senate trial of impeachment. It's going to be the people who have the firsthand knowledge whose credibility will be at issue. And the president and his defenders are free to attack their credibility if there's a basis to do so. But to attack this witness's credibility when, as Rob says, he's just providing a roadmap is nonsensical. But it is the playbook. I mean, the president has stolen corporate fraud America's playbook on how you deal with whistleblowers and discredit them. Right. But what is really behind the corporate playbook on trying to take on whistleblowers is deterrence of future whistleblowers much more than anything else. It never works in terms of defeating the investigation that is started as a direct result of the whistleblowing. What it is doing, well, that, that said, it can deter other witnesses from going forward by showing them, look what happens to you if you did do what this whistleblower just did. And by the way, it's true, right? You, you, we've talked about, you've talked about motivations of the honest whistleblowers, etc. We all know stories, I expect you do as well, of people who in fact were kind of ruined unfairly for having blown the whistle, yes? Especially if they didn't have sort of the benefit of good legal advice kind of, you know, going in. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the common, that's a common outcome. Stress is divorce. Absolutely, and that's why you need a financial reward. I mean, there should be a financial reward for national security whistleblowers, not because we want to pay for the information, but because these people's lives will never be the same. It's a net present value lump sum payment for a lost career. Exactly. That's exactly right. And when, when pro, uh, prospective clients come to me, and I'm sure it's the same with, with you, Eric, and Harry, that they come in and, and they, they present the scope of the fraud, and you do a top-of-the-head damages analysis. What is the likely return here? 
and you ask the client, what are they earning right now? What is their age? I mean, these are the questions we ask. So you can give them an idea of the likelihood of success in the case times the possible home run value times the possible you know, regular base hit value, and then the uh, likelihood of any success at all, et cetera, and the taxes and the fees that go into it. And yeah. you say to them, look, you know, even though this case, you know, we've had executives come to us that are, are earning a million dollars a year. And even if the case um, is worth to the government $50 million, it may not be worth it to you. Yeah. So this is a, a uh, you know, a great point, And many of them come in having read about the home run stories. And I think they eventually come to completely value the the sort of more sober look of their attorney. But Eric, do you, I mean, you want to sort of amplify what Rob just said? What's your first meeting or second meeting with a whistleblower like? What are you trying to accomplish? And, you know, how are you trying to sort of you know, give your best advice to someone who hasn't decided whether to file yet? Well, Rob describes stage two for us. Stage one is always listen, uh, really, really listen. And, you know, that you, often you involves... Mean you're doing the listening. I'm doing the listening because... And, and I'll have questions sometimes, but sometimes you don't even have to ask the questions or sometimes you don't even get to ask questions because you've got somebody who's been dammed up for a long period of time. They will roll their story out to you. Now, sometimes, you know, I'm a lawyer. I think like a lawyer. I have to reorganize the story so I can understand it. Um, but, um, but those first meetings are usually devoted to that. So that you can do the analysis that Rob just described. So you can say to him, okay, I now hear what you're saying. This, this is good or this is not good or it's, you know, home run or, or base hit or whatever. Um, and this is what it would be worth to you. You need to make a decision. Is this really worth it? Because here I can tell you now, here's what's going to likely happen to you in terms of your career. Uh, things we can't predict are what's going to happen to you in terms of your family and, and, and well, the stresses that will be put on your family. Yeah. That's a Although, whole other equation. by the way, equation. I mean, the lawyer-client relationship here, maybe you would compare it to family law. It really isn't like a normal business client. You will wind up with, with you know quite a lot of hand-holding, especially once you've committed then to sort of be in the boat together. One of my former well, partners had a client living in her home for a while <laughs> because <laughs> – she just felt like it was the right thing to do. Is it a concern as, as practitioners to have these wonderful on paper, these wonderful guarantees and the noble whistleblower and so on on the books, on the law books? But in practice, in society, we acknowledge, accept, uh, acquiesce in the personal and professional destruction of whistleblowers? Is that a problem? Well, well, let me put it this way. It is a lot easier for us to decide to take cases when somebody is coming into our office and the die has already been cast. They have already been fired for what they did. They've already suffered the retaliation. And so now uh, they have much less to lose. There's or someone who comes in who's at retirement age. You know, these, these are great prospective clients because you don't have the same cost-benefit analysis you have to go through. You, your question, though, is really a good one, Tom, because as a society, we're getting better. I guess that's what I would say. I mean, it, you wouldn't have before seen whistleblowers as, as remotely characterized as heroes. And now, at least there's some segment of society that appears to recognize that. It's still not as good as it should be, and, and it's still not enough 
to keep those people from being viewed by a large segment of society as rats, as tattletales, as whatever expression you want. But we're moving in the right direction. And this national security whistleblower, who clearly his motivations, as far as we can tell so far, are all the right ones, I think helps the image of people who are whistleblowers. Tom, you couldn't have gamed it precisely to know that your book would come out the uh, you know the week of the of of this whistleblower, but obviously your or well you've made clear in your book that you think the whistleblower phenomenon is is growing and is going to you know continue to be re- uh, really important across broader sectors of U.S. society, European society, and the like. Why do you think that? What's your sense of you know whistleblowing over the next 10, 20 years? I think whistleblowing is on the rise because institutional corruption is on the rise. And I think that ideally we wouldn't need whistleblowers. So many whistleblowers have told me, look, I was just doing my job. Why do we need a special word for this? But until we can get institutional corruption under control, whistleblowers are really the only source of information, particularly in a highly secret environment. They're really the only source of information for public harm, both financial harm and danger to the public's health. You know, there's actually some um, analytical support for what you just said, Tom, because there, there are studies that have been done internationally of countries, and they, they ask questions about uh, how often do you see wrongdoing that you're told to ignore? And then how, how much whistleblowing do those countries have? And they find a pretty close correlation. The, the more people are forced to look the other way when they see wrongdoing, the more likely they are to blow the whistle. Forced, you mean just by kind of social pressures? Forced. Exactly, social pressures. I mean, these are countries that don't have uh, ample reward system for whistleblowers like we do in the United States for corporate whistleblowers. But nonetheless, the, the psychological pressures, many people just can't internalize and live with comfortably the idea of being told to ignore serious wrongdoing. And I, I really believe that, even though we don't have a high percentage of people whistleblowing of the total population of people who know of wrongdoing, uh, still, I do think it's, even for the people who don't blow the whistle, they go through a lot of turmoil when they're told to look the other way um, at corporate wrongdoing or at uh, national security wrongdoing, especially. Obviously, the stakes are higher. But one of the fundamental underpinnings of a successful whistleblower law or regime is that you can depend on the rule of law. And that's what makes our current time so perilous because we have seen the erosion of the standards of law in the Justice Department itself at the highest levels and in various other agencies. And, you know, when when you think about blowing the whistle, you have to be dependent on some institution to take your allegation seriously and take it forward and take action, not just to protect you, but to take some action. And here, what you had was this whistleblower's complaint was effectively quashed in the first month by the Department of Justice, apparently, or the White House. And only through the perseverance, apparently, of the inspector general of the intelligence community did this come to light. I think we could go for hours more. It really is a phenomenon, and we're in the whistleblower age, and it's not going away. It's time, though, for our final segment, Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener, and each of the feds has to answer in five words or fewer. Our question today comes from a listener on Twitter, and it is, will there be more Trump administration whistleblowers? Uh, Tom, five words or fewer? Yes, Corruption causes whistleblower cascades. 
Yes, but not till the end of the administration. Uh, judges? You don't count those articles. Those <laughs> yeah, articles okay. don't count. Yes, dissenters realize the stakes. Yes. <laughs> thank you very much to Eric, Rob, and Tom, and thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. This episode was recorded by Courtney Columbus. Transcripts by Matthew Flanagan. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.